Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I am your host Scott Challoner, and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Gary Hetherington. Gary is an English rugby league executive and former footballer and coach and is currently Chief Executive Officer of the Leeds Rhinos in the Rugby Super League. Uh, Gary, warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. Yes, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Gary. Pleasure having you on the uh, the programme with us. Um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering that today's business leaders are going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say in the shape of COVID-19, I think it would be remiss if I didn't ask you just to what extent that has affected you and your operations because it's hit the sporting world really hard, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It's hit everybody very hard, of course, but especially sport and entertainment. Uh, and uh, you know, in, our, in our particular case, uh, you know, it's affected a variety of different sectors. First and foremost, our business. Our business has been paralysed, really, since uh, since the onset in, in March. Uh, so it's not just a case of not staging games, which we do every week on a normal basis, but our, we've got, we've got a com- uh, quite a large conference and banqueting business, and of course that's closed down. We have a hotel uh, within our stadium, a 36-bedroom hotel that's been closed down. All our retail operation, uh, and, and indeed all the business has been closed down effectively. So that's uh, that's been uh, we've been paralysed, and, uh, and and that's had uh, significant effects uh, in terms of managing our our way through it. Uh, furlough has, 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 has certainly been a godsend, uh, and we've also been uh, very grateful for all our players and staff who've taken significant salary cuts uh, throughout uh, really from from March onwards. And the support that we've had from our fans and our sponsors has been outstanding as well. But certainly our business has had a, 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 a dramatic effect on the business. And uh, you know, obviously it's not something we've ever experienced before and not something we could have planned for. But equally so to our people, uh, because we're very much a people business. We've over 100 staff uh, on site and uh, staff who have a routine and a camaraderie and uh, and, 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 and working to guidelines and the deadlines for games every week. Of course, all that's been completely disrupted and uh, the vast majority of our staff have all been on furlough work since, since March. Of course, our players, uh, players, our first team players, our academy players, our winning team as well, all been in lockdown. And for them, it's been quite traumatic because uh, not only a loss of fitness and strength, I mean, they're, they're used to Daily training and uh, having a very sort of regimented uh, lifestyle throughout the throughout the season, uh, but uh, all the social interaction has disappeared, and of course it's been a very strange surroundings for them. And whilst one with people, our fans as well, because uh, you know we have made a big effort to, to make contact as much as we can with all our fans and our members. And the thing that's uh, come out very strongly is this has produced a real void in their lifestyle particularly for, for, for the families who, yeah. who, who are all, all fans. And it's not just att- not attending games. It's just a habit of coming to the stadium, of meeting friends, family, etc. So, yes, I think it's had quite a, dam- a, a devastating effect on the business and our people. And, uh, you know, we thought we had a three-month problem back in March, and then we started to realise that this is a, a 12-month problem. And now, of course, it's 
it's certainly going to be a two-year problem because the after effects are certainly going to extend into 2021. Mm. And you mentioned that it has been an extremely traumatic time for a lot of people. Um, of course, it really has thrust the importance of mental health and well-being, this pandemic, back into the uh, the limelight of the national discussion. And mental health is hugely important in sport at the best of times, let alone during a time like this. Um, so in leadership through a time of crisis such as COVID-19, it takes even more precedence, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It, uh, and I think, you know, for... For the leaders of our organisation, including myself, of course, uh, this, this, uh, the, the added pressure that you don't—we've you know, we've no, we've, we've never experienced this before, so we've, we've had no guidelines, and of course, uh, there's been so much uncertainty surrounding uh, the, the uh, epidemic. Uh, we've, 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 we've had to sort of manage, manage the best we can, and uh, normally in business and certainly in sport, you, you work to a plan. You know, you have a business plan and a, and, a, and a strategic plan and you work to that and you've got everybody involved. Of course, there's been no plan for this, so we've had to try and create one. And that's been very much in utilising all our management and uh, uh, the interaction from the management and the, the dialogue and, and encouraging everybody and all our staff and indeed our fans as well to come up with ideas, suggestions and make, it, make us as aware as possible about the some of the challenges and possibly some of the solutions as well. And that in actual, actual fact has been very uh, rewarding uh, and, uh, and we've got a lot out of that. So it, it has been a, a pressurised time for us all because not only the financial pressures uh, create, 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 create their own uncertainty, but just the, the lack of routine and the lack of knowing what's, what's ahead of us. Uh, and the mental health is a big issue and it's, it's become... Uh, a hot topic really in sport because you know the, the, the pressures that our players go go through are quite significant, and I think it's fair to say that over the years, sport as an industry has, has not really prepared our athletes uh, to be able to deal with mental health issues and mental pressures. That is getting better, and there's a lot more work and research going into that now, and a lot more attention is given to it as well. And well, these rhinos are very aware of it, and. Uh, you know, I think one of the, the things that we have done particularly well is maintain contact, regular contact as often as possible uh, with all our people, our fans, our sponsors, our players and our staff. And that's certainly been very helpful. And during this time as well, of course, the COVID-19 situation has put so much sport on hold. Of course, in football, it was a major tournament year with England preparing to face um, a home tournament um, in some respects and with the Euro 2020. It was also an Olympic year with our Olympians preparing to head to Tokyo, of course. But that essentially has been replaced and the George flags and the Union flags are not adorning our windows um, as they probably would be. But instead, in their place are posters of rainbows and NHS signs. And the NHS, in many ways, has almost become the team that we've all got behind this summer. So do you think that there is almost a sport-like spirit in the country that's really manifested itself as a result of all of this in any case? Yes, I do. I do. And I think, uh, you know, the, I think we've all been cheerleaders for the NHS, haven't we? And, and, and the staff have done a terrific job. And you know, coming out and clapping on a Thursday night, and uh, it, it's been terrific. And 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 that's very reminiscent of of what happens in sporting environments, where you get uh, the fans come together, and it's you know, there's periods of euphoria, there's period of of, of of depression as well. You go through the whole emotions if you're a sports fan, and indeed a sports player. 
And I think a lot of that's come out in our society as well. And, it's, and, and in many ways, it's brought the best out of us as well. I think it's be, we've become much more communal. Uh, we've been much more become much more aware of the people that live in our communities and indeed our neighbours. And that's 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 very helpful. And I think uh, you know some of the goodwill that's happened and and, uh, and how charities have come to the fore. And I know you know the Leeds Rhinos Foundation, which is the club's charity. The amount of quality work that that's done in its community has been really inspiring. And I think it's brought the best, their best out of our communities, and uh, and 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 that's one of the uh, one of the few good things to come out of the uh, epidemic, of course. But uh, hopefully, that will uh, leave us with a legacy going forward, uh, a legacy of more cooperation amongst our people. Hopefully we can certainly capture that sense of national unity and really take that forward for sure. I'm um, just shifting focus ever so slightly, uh, Gary, before you became involved in the management side of sport, let's say you played almost 300 first team games as a professional rugby league player for a variety of clubs, Wakefield, Trinity, York, Leeds, Huddersfield being some of those. Um, but as you were sort of younger and getting into the sport, as it were, who would you say your sort of real inspirations were that you looked up to that really sent you on that path? Yeah, interesting question that. And uh, I, I was sort of born and brought up in, in Castleford, uh, which had, uh, was well known for its rugby league team and also its collieries. It had eight collieries in the town. And, uh, you know, when I grew up in the 1960s, if you weren't academic, as I wasn't, then you were destined for a life underground. But actually, rugby league offered an opportunity and an alternative. And so I decided at a very early age that uh, that was going to be my vocation. Uh, and uh, and it was actually the game that inspired me, not just the game, but everything about it. Uh, the people that played it, the people that managed it, the people that went to watch it. I've become fascinated with the stadia uh, and all aspects of, of, of the game. And so uh, it, it has actually been a central to my life and, uh, and, and provided with me, with me with so many opportunities. And, uh, and the, the players at the time were inspirational. They were all local players, local lads like myself who were older than me, but they they found their fame and fortune as rugby league players in the locality. And I think that they were really inspiring, not only for me, but for all uh, 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 youngsters in the town. And that, that's still true today. And I think that's one of the great things about sport. It can really inspire uh, communities and people within communities and particularly local players who do well and then go on to play for their club and that's that, that's very synonymous with rugby league rugby league was and is a game that was born out of its community over 130 years ago it's had really tough times and challenging times and shown its resilience on so many occasions and I think it's still a game of the community and that's one of its great strengths. And it's those strengths that will actually help the game and all the, all the rugby league clubs come through this really challenging period. It's that coming together, it's that spirit of cooperation where everybody will pull together and recognise the importance of the club and, uh, and, and, and its, it, its relevance to the town. That people, even though they may not be supporters themselves, they want, they want to see it do well and to see how it rec represents the town and there's a pride in there as well. I think giving people local pride is so important. So in many ways, Rugby League does that for uh, for so many different communities. And I think that's been recognised generally and it's certainly one of the strengths that will help our game come through this uh, this challenging period. 
I suppose it was also quite humbling as well, particularly during your playing and management days, that people perhaps were starting to look up to you as a beacon of the community and um, an example of success, perhaps as people when you were young were looking up to players then um, in the same way. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, you know, sports play, sports people, whether they be players or coaches or managers. Uh, have got a real responsibility. Uh, they are role models, and they can really set an example. And I know, you know, I learned so much uh, from uh, from people who I was inspired with and by. And uh, and you you look to do that as you get a little bit older yourself. And I think I think sport gives us the medium to be able to do it. Uh, and, uh, and 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 the relevance and the uh, that sport has in our communities. And uh, and I think you know we've made an interesting analogy with the uh, with how the, how a nation has come together in this really challenging period. And I think, as I said earlier, a lot of the qualities that uh, sports people and sports fans have uh, are actually synonymous with what we've seen throughout our nation. And yes, I think it, it is a time for in, inspiration, and, uh, and 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 sports people can deliver that. Mm, absolutely and you're no stranger of course to pioneering particularly with the acquisition of Leeds Rugby Club uh, which became the world's first dual code club across both Rugby League and Rugby Union of course and we're going to need pioneers we're going to need leaders over the uh, the next um, year and beyond that as well as we hopefully move through this pandemic situation and really shrug off the shackles of that forever for sure and thinking about that just in a little bit more detail Gary before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme um, what do you feel is next in this um, coming 12 months for you and for the club and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve during this time? Well we've got to come to it and as I said we, in, in, you know, you've got to have a plan you've got to have a vision first and foremost and you've got to have all your people to buy into that vision and, and that's, that's got to have a, a, a plan that underpins it and a plan that's Got, 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 can be deliverable, uh, and that, that, as I said, that involves everybody coming together uh, and, and working through it. And I think we are seeing a lot of uh, examples of that happening now. Uh, you know, we're still faced with so much uncertainty, and you know, people talk about the new normal, and we're not quite sure what that's going to be. You know, the normal for sports uh, events is, is to is to get uh, big crowds and passionate crowds as well, but at present, we've got no crowds at all. Uh, so, so it's what what does the new normal look like? What what what's it going to look like in the, over the course of the next twelve months? And how can we adapt and change? Uh, and so we've got some real real challenges. But I think that's what business leaders have got to got to do. They've got to gra- grasp those challenges and also seek opportunities as well, because there will be opportunities in there that we've ne- never hitherto thought about, and that that, that that's a challenge for us as well. And I think just having real stickability to be able to stick through uh, this difficult time and uh, and work through it and and make the best of it and come out the other end as as good as we can be. And finally, just before I do let you go, Gary, um, if you were to channel all of your experience and give some advice to somebody who was maybe looking to make it in a leadership role for the first time, be that in a sports team or within a business, what advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success? Well, to have to be their own person, to have their own vision, uh, and uh, and and to 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 listen. I think you, to become a good listener, you learn a lot more by listening than you do by talking. Uh, and to uh, to associate themselves with people have had have, have had success because you can learn from it and try and identify what you know what are the characteristics that actually deliver success. 
uh, and uh, and just be quite astute about all that. Uh, but 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 above all, to be your own person, uh, to have your own plan and your own desire. Desire and passion goes a long way as well. And uh, and you know, I think we've got a nation full of uh, potential leaders out there. And they're really going to have to step up to uh, the plate over this uh, next uh, few months, uh, for sure. And just considering that there are still a great many variables in how the pandemic could pan out, of course, we're hoping it's all going to be positive trajectory from here, but we don't know whether there will be a second spike in cases and whether things will have to just be put on hold for a bit. I think it would be wonderful, Gary, to just catch up in a few months' time and just see where we are and also just discuss how things at the club are getting on at that point in time as well. Yes, we'd be delighted to do that. At least we are playing again, albeit behind closed doors. Mm. So we are playing again, and so the, the, the players are able to, uh, to 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 show their skills. And the games are on television as well, which is which is good. Uh, so hopefully we are. Uh, th- that is the direction of travel, and we can get back to uh, to some form of normality and uh, and get back to uh, to to doing the things we love to do. Indeed, let's hope that fans can indeed return to uh, Stadia um, in the uh, the next uh, couple of months, as is planned, of course, by the government, and there will be no more hitches. Um, I have to say, Gary, it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today to share your views on current affairs and indeed leadership. And most importantly as well, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do continue to take care and stay safe uh, with all still going on. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Gary. Thank you ever so much. Um, I was speaking on the programme today to Gary Hetherington. Um, He is currently Chief Executive Officer of the Leeds Rhinos in the Rugby Super League. Um, Next up on the programme today, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with former England international Sir Jeff Hurst, the country's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero. Um, As well as scoring over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among others during his professional career, Sir Jeff remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a World Cup final following his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. That is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, uh, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I I'm want England to be successful I, I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything in, in all sports 
and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it, and I'll be absolutely. I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you yes I think people um, I, I've I, I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game I knew the game was nearly finished I, as the ball came to me initially I was actually with my back to goal I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly I'm thinking the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans-Pilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense, because the game is unfinished. But that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to... Uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making... It's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea 
during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are injured almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you, you, union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and, and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got to you've got to 
a coach, who's a team coach, who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to our, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching and management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted, that was the goal. And so as you three of us play football, but amongst those houses, 
where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbor's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, well, you were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father. I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football, I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, "Come and have a trial at this club or that club." Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter, so that's that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about as I, I kind of put it between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I have one game, uh, one game at the 
sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first class game for Essex, as you said, Egbert in um, in Liverpool, and I think I got Norton and Norton on out. I think something I we won the game. Funny, I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front, and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Mac, for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. 
And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold. Mm. Without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time of the globe and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, 
I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that club had. So um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever. It sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career, and I think I, I went into business for twenty years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. When um, you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad, and I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. 
ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.